Welcome to the NORAC podcast, your podcast on global development in education policies and practice. I'm your host, Paul Gerhardt. This episode is number eight and it features Professor Keith Lewin, a world-renowned expert on education and development. Our interviewer is uh, Alexandra Draxler, Senior Advisor to NORAG and Associate Editor of the International Journal of Education Development. Links to both the World Bank webinar and Keith article can be found on the NORAG website. And I now hand over to Alexandra, who will lead a discussion with Professor Lewin regarding external financing for education. Alexandra? Thank you so much for the introduction, Paul, and thank you Professor Keith Lewin for agreeing to share with us a key theme of your recent work. You are Emeritus Professor of International Development and Education at the University of Sussex. You have worked with and mentored contemporary and upcoming development practitioners and academics since the 1970s, both through the university and in collaboration with a wide variety of governmental and intergovernmental organizations. You have unfailingly demonstrated your commitment to international cooperation and social justice. Your most recent analysis on aid and financing, detailed in a July 2020 article in the International Journal of Educational Development, was called Beyond Business as Usual, Aid and Financing Education in Sub-Saharan Africa. This article has attracted wide attention, including at the World Bank, where you recently presented in a webinar to its ed Education Global Practices Group. We were lucky enough at NORAG to have you as one of the authors for the NORAG Special Issue Number 5, launched in November 2020, that dealt with tax justice and domestic financing. And you were also a participant in the webinar discussing the issues raised in it. You have long been concerned about the problems with aid dependency on the part of the poorest countries. This message gathers urgency as aid has peaked at the same time as the world has subscribed to the historic international collaboration called the Sustainable Development Goals. Let me quote a blunt assessment you have made repeatedly about the poorest countries in the world. External financing has not generated endogenous development which can finance itself. It has done the opposite it has prolonged dependence. You have spoken of the need to resist the contrib contribution of aid to recurrent costs, yet money being fungible, how could that be achieved? Could you elaborate? Yes, uh, thank you, Alexandra, and thank you for the invitation to contribute to this series. I think it's a very timely um, invitation, uh, not least because I believe that we have reached what I call peak aid. That is, aid will not be uh, at the same level to aid to education, which has been running at about $16 billion a year, is unlikely to go up. Indeed, I think that most commentators would suggest that it's likely to fall for reasons I'll go into later. But let me start by responding to that first observation. Of course, I'm not saying that all aid has created dependence, which is impossible to avoid and impossible to escape from. But I am observing that at least 25 countries for 25 years have been aid dependent for their education budgets. That means that decisions about who gets what and how many people have access to what quality of schooling are being made as much outside those countries as inside them. I've been in this business for about 50 years now. When I started working on education and development, I really did believe that a 
astute combination of technical cooperation, investment in capital, and investment particularly in human capital, would generate education systems that look like the one I had the luxury to attend. I went to a public school, that is a state-funded school, uh, which gave me a good education and formed the basis for my subsequent career. I didn't see why everybody else shouldn't have access to this. But I find myself 50 years later, after more than a half a trillion dollars has been spent on aid to education, looking at reports that tell me that not 5 billion is needed, not 10 billion, not 30 billion, but $100 billion a year is needed to finance the gap in recurrent costs between what countries raise in tax and what they would need to spend to achieve the SDGs. Is this true? Well, this talk will penetrate some of the truths and fallacies in that story. Is it a problem? It's a huge problem. The so-called learning crisis is actually a financing crisis in the first level. If you don't have the financing right, you can't have the number of teachers or the motivation of teachers to do a good job of the kind that I was fortunate to experience with those who taught me. In 1968, Phil Coombs wrote a book called The World Education Crisis, in which he described both the financial and human capital aspects of the problems of development in poor countries. Alexandra, I believe, actually typed some of the drafts of the book. Um, so she knows it well. The thing about that book is it could have been written 10 years later. Indeed, Phil did rewrite it uh, about 16 years later. And he said pretty much the same thing with a few different numbers. By the time we got to John Tien, I had embarked on this business of education and development full time. We did calculations for the John Tien conference that told us that the cost of education for all, as it then was, would be about an additional five billion a year. This at that time was the cost of a US nuclear aircraft carrier. It didn't seem like very much to save the planet, but it proved too much. But the number kept going up. By the time we reached uh, 2015, the imputed cost now of the gap in recurrent spending between what we have, what governments spend and what they would need to spend is more like 70 billion probably. That's more like seven aircraft carriers. I don't know which is the problem, whether it's the cost of education going up fast or the cost of aircraft carriers coming down, but I suspect it may be the former rather than the latter. So to put it in a nutshell, um, it's my disappointment that comes through. Not my cynicism, not my um, undervaluing of the efforts that people have made, not my oversight of those projects that were externally financed that really did work. It's my disquiet of all those things that didn't work. And it's my disquiet that we're having the same conversation 50 years after I started in the business. And we should really be having a very different conversation. And that's what I'd like to invite. Thank you so much. That's a, an excellent introduction to what we're going to be talking about. On the question of financing, what we keep coming back to is what other sources of financing could be tapped? Uh, aid's not up to doing the job, and we'll get back to you know what the future of aid will look like. And of course, embedded in the SDGs is the idea, and perhaps the hope, that the private sector can play a significant role in filling financial gaps through private initiatives. It's a, 
a discussion that we hear and we have negotiated with the private sector in many quarters on this, uh, on this question. Could you comment? Uh, yeah, but let me comment very briefly in two parts. Uh, first of all, you can't really discuss the role of the private sector without having an understanding of the um, uh, financing of education systems, which is a subset, of course, of the financing of public services in general. Uh, the same kind of questions apply to health and, and, and so on. Now, what, how does it look? Well, it looks something like this. If you have the demographics of a low-income country, um, then you probably have more children than you do workers who pay taxes. If you have the demographics of an OECD country, you have exactly the opposite. If you crunch some numbers through, given that reality, uh, you will find uh, that in order to finance universal participation from kindergarten to grade 12, you would need in a poor country to spend about 6% of GDP on education. In a rich country, you can probably get away with four or 5% and you'd still be spending a lot more in real dollar terms uh, because of course the um, countries are much richer. But as a percent of GDP, you wouldn't have to try so hard because you've got far fewer children to provide places and therefore far fewer teachers to pay and so on and so on. Now, where does that leave us when we compare that with the reality in LICS low-income countries and LMICS low-middle-income countries? Well, the dial on the proportion of GDP which those countries spend on education has remained pretty much in the same place since 1980. And the answer to that question is about 4% of GDP is the average allocation. That is simply not enough. It would never finance um, enough teachers, enough schools, enough recurrent costs to educate all the children from kindergarten to grade 12. So where, Alexander, you put the point very clearly, where, where can the money come from? Can it come from the private sector or can it come from somewhere else? Well, the first thing to notice is that in an OECD country, the tax to GDP ratio is typically about 35 to 40%. That is to say, 40% of GDP is collected in tax, and that is the money which is used to fund public services. The typical average for a low-income country is about 15%. That is uh, less than half or even a third as much relative to the GDP. Therein lies the problem. If you don't collect taxes, you can't have schools, you can't have hospitals. If you don't collect enough taxes, you can't have enough. Um, it's uh, unfortunate but true, um, but tax revenue collection in poor countries has typically been very small. Very few people pay income tax, and you may say, well, of course they can't pay income tax, they haven't got any income. But just as an aside, 20 people in Africa have net assets of over $100 billion. A 5% tax on their assets would be more than all the educational aid to Africa as a whole. So we have to look at the fiscal state aspect of this problem. That is to say, how does a country manage its affairs such that it can actually pay for what it wants? Because as soon as it embarks on a contract with those outside its own political economy, then it's entering into a completely different set of relationships in terms of who decides who gets what, who prioritizes what. Now, where does the private sector lie in all this? The first observation is that there isn't a private sector. There are many private sectors. They verge from multinational organizations that themselves are bigger than countries in economic terms, to 
schools that are run by individual families, households, um, which recruit maybe 50 children or even less. Private sector is not actually a sector because it's not organised. There's nobody in charge of it. Economists sometimes like to pretend that, that somehow markets are in charge of it, but actually markets for schooling are very far from perfect. Indeed, they're so imperfect that it's surprising that people still use that analogy as a method of thinking about and planning school provision. Those markets are classically distorted by time and space and the power that comes with money. Now, that's not to say the private sector can't make a contribution. It does and it can. In a country, an OECD country, true private sector provision in schooling will never be more than about 10% uh, of the total number of children in the population. This is determined by the income distribution of their parents. You cannot employ teachers and pay them what you have to pay them and run schools for uh, people who are outside the top 10% of income earners in a rich country. In a poor country, you might do better than that. You might get down to the 20th percentile. You might at primary level even get down to the 40th percentile, but you will never get down to the 80th percentile. And you must remember that if you charge fees for a public service at the point you do that, anybody who is close to or indeed below the poverty line, which would include maybe 30% of people, households in poor countries, you will make them poorer by that fact alone, by charging for a, a fee for a service. So you shouldn't do it. Even if you can do it, you shouldn't do it. And if you do do it, you should be well aware that you are almost certainly driving those households into a higher level of debt. And if, for those people who know about rural credit in poor countries, um, I'm recalling a study we did recently in South Asia, we're looking at rural interest rates for credit that might be more than 100% annual APR. You don't want people borrowing, and you particularly don't want poor people borrowing for schooling. So there are limits to what the private sector can do. In short, Yes, of course, the contribution from the private sector may be useful, but it's best seen in two respects. It's seen in terms of if rich people want to opt out of public services and pay for them themselves, this is a form of indirect taxation and it is to be welcome. Secondly, for those people who enter into providing educational services in poor countries whose motive is profit, the answer to, to them is please pay your fair share of taxes if you're licensed to operate in a country. Because at the moment there's plenty of evidence that for profit driven enterprises do not necessarily do that. Thank you so much. That's, um, that's fascinating. And it comes back to, the, to your argument about taxes. Um, so the way forward really is through domestic tax revenue and building up the capacity to to gather taxes. Looking in a broader sense about the development, uh, the development landscape, since the prospects are relatively dim for financing the SDG education targets, what comments could you offer about the current aid architecture? We've had uh, a proliferation of initiatives over the past 15 years concerning education. Do you see this as a sign of healthy diversity and, and a source of, of new ideas for, for delivering aid and for managing aid in creative ways? Yes, I do. I think there are grounds for some optimism, but I think this is very much work in progress. 
I think what we're seeing here is, first of all, an impending crisis, which really is coming from a combination of the effects of COVID directly, that is to say, much greater pressure to invest in healthcare of one kind or another. Um, on the, uh, firstly, secondly, the impact of COVID on economic growth, which is adversely affecting the willingness of OECD countries to allocate concessional money to development causes. Um, uh, and that's something that uh, must concern us all. It's also, of course, having an impact on aggregate demand in the world. People are buying less than they would have done had they been working and earning money, which would allow them to purchase things. So this all translates into what I've called peak aid. This is going to put pressure on development partners and recipients to make much better use of the resources that they've got, which are, let's not forget, uh, very substantial. Collectively, uh, although I believe that aid to education will fall, uh, it will still be a major resource and it has to be used strategically and effectively. And the historical lesson that I draw from my 50 years of working in development is that that indeed is the challenge. We need to look forward to a different kind of aid in the future, which is truly catalytic rather than gap-filling. Too much of what we've done in the past and what is being justified currently is based on the premise that there is a gap between what governments have and what they need and that somehow it should be filled from external uh, financing. This has not proved to be successful. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here looking at demands for yet more external finance. It's simply not sustainable. It is the antithesis of sustainable. It is the invitation of dependence. If a country is accepting 40% of its education budget from outside, whoever is paying that will have views on what it's spent on. If you couple that with the change in the architecture, the international architecture of aid, you see some dimensions which should concern people. So the scenario that we're looking at is one in which the total volume of aid will stagnate or may indeed shrink. It will become less important in the future than it has been in the past. If I talk for a moment about Sub-Saharan Africa, um, then the situation is this. In, nine, in the 1980s, Africa received twice as much in aid as it generated in revenue. By 2015, the opposite was true. Africa was generating twice as much in revenue as it was receiving in aid. This completely changes the kind of political economy of the relationship between donors and recipients. It reduces dependence, but it also strengthens the social contract between governments and their people, the people who pay tax and the people who are responsible for delivering services. That's a very good and very healthy trend. And one of the future uses of external investment should be indeed to encourage precisely that, should be to encourage the development of fiscal states which can pay for the public services um, that they wish to consume. But that's not enough. I mean, the other part of the equation, of course, is to try and increase the efficiency and effectiveness of the investment which currently takes place in systems. It's true in some countries that twice as many children could go through secondary school for pretty much the same cost if those schools were as efficient as they are in a typical OECD country, if they made the same use of human and physical resources, albeit at different cost levels. This is something we have to look at in terms of efficiency 
there are many dimensions to this. It includes, for example, uh, in some countries, the proportion of small schools, which can be extremely expensive, but are often of low quality because it's impossible to deliver full national curricula, especially at secondary level, uh, in, in very small schools. So we've got to be aware of the opportunities to increase efficiency and aware of the opportunities to increase effectiveness. In terms of the contribution that multilateral agencies and their coordination can make, I think we should recognize the value that came from the Paris Accords about aid effectiveness. And that, that is a story which is still running. Uh, the ideas are great. The realization is yet uh, to, to, to become uh, widespread. But I'm particularly reminded in this discussion about um, the point that was made in the Paris Accords, um, that what we should be trying to do is manage for results, not manage by results. And I see that one of the troublesome trends, at least in my book, is to move towards more and more performance-related contracting in aid in the belief that somehow your client will behave better uh, and is more likely to achieve whatever result you want to achieve uh, if you um, effectively don't pay them until they achieve the result. Now, this strikes me as a, always struck me as a very strange way to behave. We should be managing learning step by step. We should not be saying at the end of the day, if you manage to achieve this learning task, you get a pair of roller skates. This is the, this is the mentality of pocket money for children. It doesn't apply to governments. And the calculus of reward and motivation doesn't work in the same way. So it's very important that we look with caution at these efforts to manage by results rather than for results, um, because it makes a rather unfortunate assumption. It makes essentially the assumption of original sin, that people won't do the right thing unless they're paid precisely to do it. But of course, most of us, and pretty much every parent I think I've met, uh, likes to believe that people achieve educational outcomes for reasons which aren't simply to do with how much they're paid. We need to be much cleverer about how we look at implementing the Paris Accords, of which that's just one dimension of several. But I'll return to that if you wish, because there's far more in the Paris Accords, which gives food for thought about what should happen rather than what I is happening. I'm struck by your use of the word catalytic because all of us who are in this profession know that from pilot projects to to any attempts to go to scale that uh, there are not that many projects that work that way. So um, the, the talk about things being catalytic to spur reform is very, very important. You've also said that the SDGs are a list and you're not the only person that says that, that encompasses no theory of change. And we have a bit of a paradox because many influential observers endorse both the idea that the SDGs are a list more than a plan and your observation that there's no real theory of change. So as we've reached peaky aid and as you've talked about the, the problems we're facing, do you think that uh, our common future is going to be built on multilateralism more or less the way it's been practiced before? Or is it conceivable that it might change significantly with new donors 
coming into prominence in particular China? Very timely question. Um, the multilateral and bilateral worlds will not go away. I think they will be with us for as long as we're around. Um, but the mix between them and the significance of what they do may well change. I'll return to the Paris Accords, actually. I mean, of course, the, the, the first of those was about ownership. And the question I'd like to put to my colleagues who work in education and development is, have you seen a shift in ownership in the last 20 years in terms of the global agenda for SDG4, Education for All? Because I have. In fact, most recently I saw that um, I think uh, a new financing fund has announced that his goal is to halve the number of children who can't read at an adequate level at the age of 10 in the world. Now, if you set that as a goal for an educational financing fund, you've already excluded about half the countries in the world probably from being eligible for it. Not clear why. Um, it's also not clear how you would actually achieve this goal as a multilateral institution, because you've no capacity to implement anything. Uh, all you may be able to do is mobilize money. And if you mobilize money, yes, you could spend it on that. But the question it invites is, why would you? Which is a theory of change question. Because if you can't answer the, why, why do you want to do that? Obviously it's an intrinsically good thing that every child should read, but it may not be the most important thing. The fact that apparently there are 43 million functionally illiterate adults in the United States does not lead to the conclusion that if, that if you halve the rate of functional literacy amongst 10 year olds in the United States, uh, you would get the best result you could for the money that you were prepared to allocate. Neither it has to be said, are you spending money? This is a common delusion of both multilateral and bilateral agencies in the way sometimes they present their contribution. They talk about spending money in order that uh, X million girls will have the opportunity to go to secondary school, for example. No, you're not spending that money. What you should be doing is committing a stream of revenue to equalizing the participation of girls and boys in school that goes on forever. If you benefit one generation of girls at the expense of the next, I'm not quite sure what you've done because you should have started with the proposition that what you were doing was sustainable. And that leads you back around in a circle of bilateral and multilateral relationships, uh, which leads you to the idea of catalytic assistance, which is the kind of things you can do which shift the dial, which change the nature of the relationship between X and Y, between girls and boys in terms of their participation in school. Um, they, they change that relationship so that forever in the future, the first problem that you've encountered and used to uh, address uh, is one that doesn't keep recurring, doesn't keep coming back. So it seems to me that we need to be looking very carefully, not at running projects that create solutions to problems one-off. There's no point in running programs for out-of-school children if you don't address the reasons that caused them to become out of school in the first place, because you will do, go on doing that forever. You have to address the cause of the problem uh, and fix it. Then you have made a sea change, you've made a switch, you've made a, um, a tipping point happen. And that's the sort of thing that external uh, assistance may be good for. Uh, what it's manifestly not good for is recurrent costs, because that means paying teachers salaries, and surely nobody really thinks that 
foreigners paying teachers' salaries in poor countries indefinitely is a good idea. It isn't. It's a very bad idea. Uh, but that problem has to be solved in some other way, and it is solvable. And borrowing money is also, though temporarily attractive, uh, potentially lethal. Some kinds of concessionary finance are effectively subprime loans. And for those who follow the financial history of the last financial crisis, you know what happens when you over lend to clients who don't have the ability to repay. You default. One country in Africa recently has defaulted. And the risk is that many more may follow as a result of the pressures created by COVID and global economic recession. This is probably not the time to be contracting loans. It may be a time to, to see what grant finance available being used very strategically um, to buffer the effects of the pandemic. Uh, but more loans is unlikely to be a good way out of it, particularly if they're loans linked to um, hedge funds and venture capital. But that's a personal view I happen to have. Thank you for that. That's that's really interesting. That the takeaways for me are many, many, but your your point about think catalytic funding and your point about creating revenue streams, I think will appeal to everybody who's uh, perhaps less knowledgeable about the topics you're dealing with. In conclusion, because we've come almost to the end, would you like to have some additional thoughts about positive potential trends and also perhaps negative of the biggest one looming is COVID, of course, about the future? First of all, Tax revenue in low-income countries is likely to continue to increase, all things being equal. The effects of COVID are severe, um, but they won't last forever. What is happening is that money is becoming digitized. It is becoming much more difficult globally to hide assets that are acquired illegally. More and more people will ultimately fall into PAYE systems, where, the, uh, where they pay tax as they go along, rather than have to be chased for all these reasons and others, revenue is likely to increase even if you don't do anything. That is, if you simply enforce the existing tax legislation and make sure that those who should pay tax do pay tax, and this includes individuals and companies, uh, then you could easily see your tax take um, increase by 50%. This would make a huge difference to public finances. So we can expect that to happen. The question will then become what to do with this additional revenue. And the question, which is a domestic political question, is how do you make sure that the political economy pans out in such a way that more of that is invested in education? That's the first point. We've already discussed catalytic aid and the need to change what we think we're doing. We're trying to accelerate development, not create more dependent development. And I'll leave that issue at that point. I think we need to be much more tolerant and much more understanding that what we're trying to do somehow is subject to equifinality and multifinality. That is to say, equifinality means that there is more than one way to get a desirable outcome. If it really was true that there was national ownership of sustainable development plans in education, they would look different. But what we actually see at a global level is a convergence towards a single set of uh, which uh, is imputed to apply across a wide variety of contexts. 
if there ever was a North and South, there are now many Norths and Souths. The South is highly diverse. There are no developing countries. There are lots of groups of countries which share things in common with each other. But within the group, it's very difficult to see that they're somehow homogenous in their need for external assistance and their deployment of educational investment. They aren't, they're very different. So we should encourage and we should see a much greater disaggregation of goals and investment strategies related to education and development than we actually do. The third thing I think that we need to do in the light of the advent of PK is to be much more realistic about what we can do and what we can't do. Then we might succeed. The track we're on at the moment is bound to lead to failure. That is to say in 2030, we'll be having a similar discussion about an even larger number of billions of dollars uh, that, that we need in order to achieve outcomes that we've failed to achieve with the billions of dollars that we've spent. We don't want to be there. We want to look at this problem differently and set goals which are achievable. And those goals, as I've already said, are likely to be different between countries, not the same everywhere. They would be owned and they would be feasibly financed domestically, albeit with short-term assistance in the process of moving from a non-fiscal state to becoming a fiscal state. That's what we need to do. It is a different approach. It's radically different, but it takes on what I think is the simplest way of putting a challenge. In that 50-year lifetime of my work on education and development, lots of things have happened, not least a man has been placed on the moon. We're a society globally that can do these things. And more and more countries now are launching satellites um, and sending missions to Mars. This is a very clever thing to do. But for some reason, we can't get every primary school child in school. and We can't keep them there, nor can we get them through secondary school. The GPE, which is the largest funder of grant aid to education and development in the world, now has 90 members. It appears to mean that 90 countries would benefit from grant aid because they cannot somehow act as fiscal states and finance basic education for all. This is not good enough. We have to return to that question. We have to ask ourselves what our theory of change really is. We have to ask ourselves how aid of one kind or another, whether it's grants or concessionary loans, can accelerate development without leaving an unacceptable footprint behind of dependence or otherwise. And we have to think beyond COVID to the biggest challenge that we confront. And that challenge, of course, is about our planet, preserving our planet, the realization that education for sustainable development means that we all begin to understand that the planet has got no necessary motivation to look after us, but we have every motivation to look after our planet. Our children have to understand this, the next generation have to value the future over the present. And the aid that we give does have to result in sustainable financing of education systems rather than the development of dependent ones. Thank you so much, Keith. The last takeaway is a very moving one. It's one of hope. And the hope is that we can make aid redundant because of doing some of the things that you've pointed to. Thank you again for taking the time on behalf of Norad. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Alexandra, and everybody else involved.